This is part one of a two-part podcast. Hi, my name is Ryan. I've been a supporter of Paul's for many years now. I wish to get the podcast and video creation part of the system we call Paul back up to full speed. And I think Patreon support is a big part of that system. Go over to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. Make a pledge for each artifact that Paul creates. Again, the site is patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. Okay, it's recording. I see a flashing red dot. All right, we're going to review Desert of Paradise, pages 70 to, I think, about 80 or 82 or so. Yeah, 82. Um, and uh, there's four of us here today. Uh, Opalin is going to show pictures to the YouTube people. And um, uh, Mark is here. He was giving advice to Opalin about how to show pictures to the YouTube people. And Katie's here. She's she's actually read the piece that we're gonna we're gonna talk about. I've I've also read the piece that we're gonna talk about. And uh, so uh, a good a good round group. But but everybody's uh, in fact I'm thinking all three of you have listened to most, if not all, of my podcasts. Is that is that accurate? That's correct. Okay. And yes, uh, yeah, Katie, you're just saying yes. Yes. And and Opalin? I'm working my way through them. I listen to several every week. Okay, okay. Right. Not at all, but but you're you're getting there. Yep. Okay. All right. All right. Um and and of course my my Kickstarter is doing magnificently. It's it's doing better than any any of my previous Kickstarters, which kind of makes me think that maybe maybe people are more interested in the skip book than they they've been interested in any of my previous stuff. Or maybe I've just gotten better at doing Kickstarters. Uh, I I kind of feel like I'd be glad to like share all of my Kickstarter stuff, but um I I kind of get the feeling that people really don't care. <laughs> they just <laughs> it's it's like their interest is in permaculture, not in Kickstarter. Yeah, seventy one thousand right now. Um, and, uh, uh, I think that when we were doing the Better World book, which was my previous all-time best Kickstarter, we were at about 50,000 at this point. So we're, you know, 20,000 ahead of that. It's pretty exciting. So, uh, uh, I kind of can't help but go and, and, and look at all that stuff, you know, 40 times a day. All right. Anyway, <clears throat> Desert of Paradise by Sepp Holzer, by the book. Although, Mark, Mark, you had an update on buying the book because we in our in our last episode, you were on an adventure yeah. to go and acquire the book. How'd that work out? <laughs> well, the the one book that I found for a reasonable price that was the paperback edition uh, was in German. So, uh, fortunately, just from the the review of the description of the book was all in German. And so everything about what I found was in German. So, yeah, I, I went and purchased the Kindle version today. Uh, so I'll try to get caught up there. Interesting that Opalin has seen paperbacks starting for $414 or $410 there. Um, I think when I was looking at it, my 
four used or new via Amazon were like sixty, fifty-six or sixty-five dollars, something like that. So interesting. Amazon must think that you have deep, deep pockets there, Oakland. And so therefore, four hundred dollars. Like, what's the what's the big deal? It's only four hundred dollars. You know. I'm pretty sure I got a paperback copy for not much more than the Kindle. Yeah, it's supposed to go for like thirty or something. And but every place that I looked at, it said like they had one left, and then you would try to place the order. Oh, we're out, and they'd give you a refund, or just they were out in general. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, I remember Maybe I'm not buying worthy of buying one. Sorry, Mark. Go ahead. Oh, no, no. Go ahead. I remember buying two different set books at the same time, and it was $65. And on the back of my Chelsea Green distributor's copy, it's twenty nine ninety five. <laughs> so I, that's about what I paid. Yeah, that sounds right. When I went to Chelsea Green, they didn't have it there. They were out of stock. Did you try going out to permanent publications? I, I mean, it would be like they'd have to ship it yeah, to England, right? So that right. the the shipping would be insane. But I don't know. Maybe they they would have that. Um. All right. The, moving moving along. The the book uh, Desert of Paradise by Sepp Holzer. Um. Uh. I I kind of feel like it's important to say go buy the book, but apparently that could be a challenge. <laughs> so um. Uh, all right. I will, I, this, this next section is drainage, overflow, and the invention of the pivoting monk, which later he calls the Holzer monk, um, because he invented it. Water should not spill over the dam wall in heavy rain. An emergency drain needs to be installed instead. I usually build a spillway overflow channel that leads the water around the dam, preferably over natural ground. If that is not possible because of the existing landscape, I need to protect it from erosion and washout by installing a drainage pipe or a channel clad in heavy natural stones. I also use heavy natural stones for the inlets. I plant various water plants between the stones. They stabilize the sidewalls and prevent soil from being carried into the stream and pond. With heavy rainfall, the pond would become cloudy for weeks otherwise. So, um, I I kind of feel like it's important to state that, that he's saying, all right, there is... There's two ways for the water to get out of the pond. There's going to be this, some kind of pipe, which in this case is going to be the monk, plus an emergency overflow. So, which, which goes off to the side. Now, I think that this is pretty standard pond building technique. And I, I am pretty sure I've talked about this several times in these podcasts already. But, uh, uh, and, and of course, I'm glad that he puts the mention of putting the heavy rocks in to kind of be part of the, the drain space. So wherever the water is draining out, that it goes over a lot of really heavy rocks. So if there's any water going out on your emergency overflow, then um, it's going to not 
dig away at the hillside because of these heavy rocks. Uh, and then the other thing is, is that, uh, uh, Sep does the thing with the, the monk. So hard and such an old um, Sorry about that. Yeah, it sounds like you know, we're getting some, some alternate opinions. But, uh, so the idea is, is that with the monk, you're going to basically have a pipe that is, let's say, vertical. So the only way that the water can go into the pipe is kind of going over the edge of the circle of the pipe that's at the, at the top. So it's like the top edge of the pipe is parallel with the pond surface. Um, so the next thing about the monk, to kind of describe it, is that I – and this is a part that I disagree with. And, of course, Sep will point at me and yell catastrophe over and over and over again, proving that I'm a fool and he's brilliant. <clears throat> and yet he's not here, so I get to say my thing. Um, he likes to run the pipe for the monk really low in the dam. Now, he does mention in this chapter that if your dam gets to be really big, or if you're talking about a really large body of water, that this no longer works. This works only on, you know, your smaller ponds or lakes. Um, but he'll run it through the dam low. And, um, uh, and, and he does and I think we're going to talk about this in a little bit. He's got he's got a technique that he does for this to keep the water from running along it. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to get to that in a little bit. Um, I'm concerned that that low in the pond that the water pressure is pretty high and that the water pressure wants to go along the pipe through the dam to the other side of the dam and then dig a brand new channel along this pipe. Now, he has a way to mitigate that, and we'll get to that in a little bit, but I I agree with him that it is wise to have this pipe, but I do mine in a very different way. And I don't know, I mean, this is, a, this is an okay time to talk about my different way, right? Is this sure. out of the book? Um, so what I do is, so what Sep does is that he's got this horizontal pipe low in the dam, and then there's an elbow that goes up into the pond, and then this pipe will there'll be that, so it's basically a vertical pipe connected with an elbow to a horizontal pipe. And then when the water, so there's a picture on there now for the YouTube viewers of a part of it and of of one, I believe that's at the parameter off. No, wait, that's, that one's in, um, uh, Portugal, isn't it? I think that's that one, that particular one is, is at Tamara in, in Portugal. Uh, but anyway, the idea is, is that, uh, the pipe is vertical. And then when the water level reaches the top of the pipe, it starts to go into the pipe along the edges of the pipe, uh, at the opening of the pipe. Um, and that determines generally the height of the water, the water level in the pond or lake. Um, and then one of the things that he likes to do is that if you tilt the pipe, 
then it gets lower and lower and lower, and so you can lower the water level in your pond or lake uh, by by doing that. Um, and there are times when you might wanna. Um, now, one of the things about doing that is is that if it's straight up and down, it's pretty good at keeping sticks and crap out. Pretty good, not perfect. But your bigger sticks kind of get up there, and they can't get into the pipe that way. Um, but when your pipe starts to go down to an angle, now the sticks are like, I can get in there. And then they want to get in there and plug it all up, which is what you don't want. I mean, there's ways to mitigate that to help keep it from plugging up. But those ways usually suck. Like either those things that you've done to keep the pipe from getting plugged up now plug up. Or they ice up in the winter, and all kinds of comedy comes from that. Could you put a couple of, um, like, 45 elbows on the end of that? So as you rotate it down and it's no longer totally vertical, you could then rotate those little elbows on the end of it so that the final surface of that pipe, those elbows, would be then parallel with the surface of the water to, to maintain that. You could. That might be an option. But, like, that's kind of assuming that you're going to, like, uh, say, okay, I want I want this pond to have a water level that's, like, three feet lower than normal. And so I'm going to adjust the monk to be off to one side, and then I'm going to monkey with the, the elbows on the end to get it so that um, uh, it's, like, right at the surface the correct flat way. Um, but it's kind of like, in my experience, I kind of either want my ponds to be totally full or totally empty. And, uh, I mean, there's reasons why you want to drain the pond. Um, it's not very often, but, you know, there can be reasons. But the whole idea of, like, and now I've decided to have it be three feet low. I don't know. I don't understand that one. I've never done that before. Like, I wanted, or I've never, I should say, not only have I never done it, because I've never set anything up to be able to do that, but it's like I've never encountered the situation where it's like, I, I, I wish that was the case. I wish I could set it to be three feet low. So I don't, I don't know what the story is there with making a pond be three feet low. You know, I, I made, is there anybody who's, uh, who's got any ideas three feet low? Like you've got a pond, it's um, like, let's say it's 15 feet deep. I'm thinking maybe, maybe you need to do some work on the dam itself and you want the water a little lower so there's less risk that it will blow the dam out if you're having to dig on it for some reason. Okay, I'm trying to think like, what's your what's your reason, dude? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't yeah. have experience with working on dams. So. And, and the other thing is when the so for my systems, I would just make it so that um, uh, <clears throat> there was the the pipe that would um, there there was the pipe part, which my pipe part is different than Sep's monk. But there was, there was that, and then there was the emergency overflow, and there was that. 
And then if I ever got the feeling like I want to drain the pond, in which case maybe your scenario comes up and it's like, I want to drain the pond and be able to work on this thing, which might be half a day. And in which case the monk thing, it's like what you're proposing would be temporary. But for me, if I wanted to drain the pond for half a day or something like that, I had a pretty big siphon hose. And then I just, it was like a, a inch and a half poly pipe. And I would just go put the whole thing into the pond. And then I'd put my hand over one end and pull one end over to the other side, then pull my hand off. And then it's siphoning, it's draining. And um, it'll just sit there and, and drain as long as I lit it. And when I'm like, that's good, it's three feet down, then I could just stop it and, you know, stop the siphon. Just pick the, pick the, the pipe up and, and go stand on the dam, and then it all drains out and air gets in it. And it's like, and now the siphoning is over. That was, that was it. That's the whole thing. Now, my system was is that I used poly pipe, and I just would use um, uh, two pieces. Like one piece would be uh, an inch or inch and a half poly pipe, and then uh, I would connect it to something that would be bigger poly pipe. And then the idea is is that the smaller stuff would go into the pond, and then the bigger stuff would start like as I am in the dam. And so um, I would try to take my water from the mid-level of the water, and then I would start to I'd go to the dam, and then the pipe would go up a little bit, switch to the bigger pipe, go up a little bit more, and then start to go down again, and then carry the water going out to a point that's away from the dam. Now, the highest point in this pipe would then determine the apex of where, like the height of the water, like the pond level would be here. This is my standard pond level. So whenever there's more than that, then water would flow through the pipe at the apex. At the same time, because there's a bigger pipe connected to a smaller pipe, a siphon cannot form. There's enough air in the system so that there's not ever going to be a siphon. Um, and whatever the, the level of the pond is, that water level is right there at the apex, slowly dribbling out. So that's, that's my substitute for the monk. And then what I also do is, is that, um, I, uh, take a piece of uh, the poly pipe and um, I crimp the I, – I take a piece that's like about 18 inches long and I crimp uh, both ends, thus making like a, a big gob of air inside it. And then I just tie a rock with a three-foot bit of twine to the uh, intake, and I also tie this piece of poly pipe to it. So what happens is, is that the rock determines, uh, like the rock's going to go to the bottom of the pond. The string is going to determine how high up the intake is above the bottom of the pond. And then the little 
piece of polypipe I've attached to it is like holding it up inside the pond. Um, Opalyn, I think if you scroll down there enough, well, maybe not. I was going to say, like, I've got images somewhere on Permies of the stuff I'm talking about that you could possibly show, but I'm not sure where it is. Um, I'll keep looking. I haven't been finding anything that's useful relative to what you're discussing. I've been searching. So for my intake, I just, on the end of that polypipe, I crimp the end of the polypipe, and um, uh, and then I just drill, like, a 100 holes in it, and then I wrap it in some stainless screen, and that's my water intake. And uh, I don't, the, the point is, is that I'm – uh, I'm trying to uh, pull water from a point that's going to be really clean. It's probably not going to have a lot of stuff that's going to plug it up because the stuff that's going to plug up your pipe is either floaters or sinkers. So I'm taking from uh, the, the middle of the pond, which in the middle of winter is also not going to be ice. Um, and then uh, uh, because it's not ice, then the water that's going into the next pond below is um, not not super cold, um, and it's it's hopefully going to stay quite liquid as it goes over to the, the next pond and, and aerate and add water. The other thing is, is that the water that I am taking out of the pond tends to be the water that has very little oxygen in it. And so you have more oxygen in the water that's higher up in the pond. But the water that I am putting out <clears throat> is going to get a lot of air contact and get very oxygenated soon. It's going to hit full oxygen saturation very quickly. So I kind of feel like rather than taking air out of the system like SEP does from the top of the pond, which already has a lot of oxygen in it, and then is going to end up through this process getting just a pinch more. Instead of doing that, what I want to do is I want to uh, uh, take the stuff that already doesn't have a lot of oxygen in it and add a lot of oxygen to that. I end up with a lot more oxygen in my system because of that. All right. So, Paul, I just want to make sure you're, you're taking the water from the bottom of the pond. Trying to take it from, like, the middle okay. of the pond. Maybe a little low middle. So like so, this sort of yeah. Try and try and type in Paul Wheaton pond. So you're doing you're you're doing this Google image search. I don't know Paul Wheaton pond. Just how about Paul Wheaton pond? What? Yeah, that's that's a what I don't know. Edible ponds. All right. So. You're taking it from the middle of the pond, but the pipe, is there something on the other side that controls when it lets water out? Because, of course, if you stick a pipe into the middle of a pond, that will become the new top of the pond. Well, what he was describing was that while the intake of that pipe is at the, the middle of the pond's water depth, the pipe is going upwards into the dam or into the bank at an incline, and then at the peak is when I believe he said you connect the larger pipe to the smaller one. And at that connection, that's the highest point of that pipe is where the intended water level of the pond is. And then 
it continues out to the next pond at a downward slope with that larger pipe. So there's always some air inside that larger pipe to prevent the siphon effect. So wherever you've placed that high point in the pipe, that's where the water pressure from the pond will push the water in that smaller pipe up to that peak and then it will start to drain out and so assuming you don't have you know a heavy rain or something that would just you know overwhelm the pipe intake that's how it would level opalin can you type into your google image search paul wheaton pond siphon maybe that'll bring up the image that we're looking for here So, Paul, do you have a, uh angle on the side that's not in the pond, the side that's going up, so you can control it on the fly? Um, so, okay, let's, let's, if we, uh, there's actually, there's somebody else's drawing of what I have described. Um, but, but I think my drawings are in there somewhere too, but this is, this drawing is, is perfectly okay, although, I would want to comment on it. Maybe we can go to one of my drawings, which are possibly less handsome. Okay, here we go. This is a great one. This one really draws the picture. So to to answer your question, Katie, I have nothing controlling the amount of flow into the pipe. Um with the exception of the size of the pipe itself. Now, I designed this on Mount Spokane where we had a seasonal little dribble of water. And so it would only run during the uh, the winter, basically, winter and spring, maybe a little in the fall. It was very seasonal. And so I I put I put this in. I designed this system. Now, did I answer your question, though? Because I think you're asking, how do I control the flow? Yes, you answered my question. This picture okay. helps a lot, too. All right. Um, the picture is that the, the, the height is inside the wall of the dam. So you, you couldn't move that up and down. It's inside the dirt. Right. Another important thing is is that if there was any water in the system, like any water in the dam trying to follow the pipe, then it gets up to this high point in the dam, and then it it basically um, the water pressure is so incredibly low that it it probably it is it is far less likely to try and push its way through. So I feel like it's safer and easier to deal with. Now the thing is, is that you can kind of see that there's a part where the poly pipe goes into a wooden trough. And it dribbles the water into the wooden trough, thus gaining a lot of oxygen. And then that water dribbles into the next pond, so it again gains a lot of oxygen. So, all right. <clears throat> I guess a real good thing to say is, did I describe this adequately into a podcast format to to get the point across to maybe more than half of the listeners? <laughs> I think so, but I my what I'm thinking about is like I'm not sure we described what the Holzer monk was first. I think we described what you were your your position on it, and so as long as we go back and talk about all right, 
So the Holzer Monk is a horizontal pipe. And I should say, let's start with the horizontal pipe. It's not truly horizontal. It goes a little bit downhill. But it's a horizontal pipe attached to an elbow, which is attached to a vertical pipe. And then if you just leave it vertical all the time, then the opening at the top of the pipe determines the water level of the pond. And then the, the you know, which is fascinating. And what Sepp says, and I, I believe that in the and looking at Desert Paradise, Sepp says that this opening at the top of the pipe and that when the water hits it just right, if you've done it all correctly, then the water as it enters the pipe goes tip, 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 tip. And, and there's in one of his videos, in the three-in-one videos, which, by the way, I should point out, we've, we have found the people that own the copyright for the three-in-one video, and we have arranged for it to be sold on Permies in streaming form for, I think it's 15 bucks. And um, uh, I don't know. We seem to sell like four or five a week. <clears throat> so the the people that own that that own the copyright on that, they're very happy <laughs> that we've contacted them. And also in the Kickstarter, it was part of the early bird that one of those uh, movies was included as part of the early bird, as one of the early bird goodies. Um. So, uh, all right, and as long as we're talking, the Desert or Paradise movie, uh, which Sepp owns the rights to, uh, was one of was our very first stretch goal, and we hit that stretch goal ages ago. I think we now have hit twelve stretch goals. But um, uh, I have been in the most bizarre contact with Sepp over email. And we've made arrangements for this. And uh, uh, so, yeah, <clears throat> I'm in contact with Sepp, barely. <laughs> All right. The monk is basically a pipe with an elbow. It sticks straight up in the pond, and then it runs horizontal out to the other side of the pond. And then, of course, there's this one weird thing that you can do if you want, which is that you can take the vertical part, and kind of lean it over to the side so it could go down, 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 down. And wherever it goes down to, then that defines what the new pond level is. And you could even have it go as far down as, like, all the way down to the bottom of the pond. So that's that's the monk. Now, there's a problem with that design in that at the elbow of the monk, there can be leaks. Now, he's got ways to kind of mitigate that. And then there's the other problem of, like, that horizontal pipe is low in the dam where there's a lot of pressure, but he's got a way to mitigate that, too. Well, And I'll explore that. I'll, I'll share his stuff about that here in a moment. So have I described it adequately now? I think so. There's a paragraph or two that I wanted to read from what Sephiro. Go for it. So the Holter Monk... A monk is used in a fishery to drain or to regulate the water level in a pond. 
In a pond with a monk, the emergency drain would only be used when the monk is blocked by branches or leaves. So the emergency drain or spillway is slightly higher than the monk at its tallest level. Um, what is a monk, you ask? It is a draw-off tap. It consists of a shaft lined by a U-shaped iron, and I think you, I would interpret that to be pipe. Um, and then it gets a little too confusing to try and describe. <laughs> <laughs> I was having that same problem. In fact, when I read the whole thing, I was thinking, like, this is describing one of those things that are U-shaped iron. So they'll have, like, angle iron um, on the sides and possibly even the bottom. And then they'll have these blocks of wood that sit inside of that. And then um, it holds back the water. It's the water level is determined by these blocks of wood. Like, if you take all the blocks of wood out, the water level goes down to the bottom of this U-shaped thing. But if you put all the blocks of wood in, then the water level goes way up. I, that's what I kind of felt like he was describing, which I would think is not the monk, but maybe he's saying that this is a different kind of, maybe, maybe he's saying that some people call that a monk, and then this is, then he goes on to describe the Holzer monk. That makes a lot more sense, given that, yeah, that is, because he, his question at the beginning of the paragraph that I stopped reading in is, what is a monk? So what is it generally? Um, right. And then, and so, then he describes his, which has several um, variations or alterations to mitigate what he sees as the problem with a typical monk. So he's, so there's a bit where he says, it is called the Holzer monk, because <laughs> I invented it. It can be built quite easily. I decided to use pipes made of plastic as they have less problems with freezing. So uh, I'm doing my damnedest to have less plastic in my life, and it's hard <laughs> to have less plastic. And so here he is, like, you know, I'm going to use plastic. And it's kind of like, ah, I wish you would do something else. Okay. To make the connection watertight, I shovel some sawdust or horse manure around the pipes. So I think he's talking about the elbow, which, can, which is able to rotate a little bit. The fibrous particles get sucked into the bushings and make the whole connection beautifully waterproof. Okay. I'm kind of thinking like, I don't know, man. <laughs> <laughs> but sure, not okay. eventually rot. I, but then more would come in, right? I guess that's what he's saying. I mean, eventually there gets to be a lot of muck in the bottom of the pond, yeah. and so the muck kind of fills those cracks. Maybe I don't know. Um. Okay. All right. All right. Then comes practical tip: the horizontal drainage pipe has a smooth surface. This might lead to leaking over time. And I want to insert in here, a leak like that will quickly blow out your whole dam. Like if a leak like that gets started, 
it gets bigger and bigger and bigger really fast, and then your whole body of water goes downhill to visit the neighbors. I so, was thinking that was a pretty huge understatement. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to go with understatement here, but continuing with his words, to prevent this, I recommend giving the pipe a rough surface that fully connects with the surrounding earth. The best way to achieve this is by wrapping the pipe with stripes of builder's fleece or jute. In order for them to stick to the pipe, I soak them with rapid-setting cement. This system works well and fully connects the pipe with the surrounding soil, thereby creating a long-term, fully watertight drainage pipe. Okay, so basically what he's going to do is make that surface rough. And and I think some of the images kind of show that, like his drawings show that on page 71, that little bit of artwork there, kind of shows it being rough. And as long as it's rough, it is way less likely for water to start running along that edge. I have an analogy. Okay. It's similar to when a person breaks their leg and they go to the doctor and they get a cast. So the material that he's talking about is like wrapping a cast around this, only he's intentionally making it lumpy and bumpy and uneven so that it can integrate with the key in the dam and the whole dam um, and not have a slick surface for water to run along. Right, right. So um, I I cannot think of a better way to do it, although I do, of course, wish that he would not use plastic, which is so slick to begin with. Um, I also kind of feel like you're begging for trouble by having it that low in the dam. And I wish he wouldn't use cement, which has, like, environmental problems, although, you know, you can make your own cement. Let's pretend that he did. <laughs> but um, I I, uh, I think he's mitigated it pretty thoroughly. He's mitigated the, the concerns quite thoroughly there. I think that this I, – I believe it works very well, not only because it, it – it works in my head, but also because it's set. And so, all right, the next bit, the Holter Monk can also be used to clean a pond. I connect a fire hose or a flexible pipe to the vertical pipe. Because of the height difference, there is low pressure in the system, and I can use the fire hose like a vacuum cleaner to fish out leaves, algae, or small plants. So uh, I've heard him describe this many times, and I can't help but think that he just has lots of fun doing it. But one of the things, the one of the reasons why you would want to drain a pond, and I, and with you, me using my siphon system, I can do this as well. But um, when he talks about all of the rocks coming into the pond and how he's trying to – and he plants a lot of plants between those, I mean, what he's trying to do is he's trying to make it so that there's less silt and stuff building up in the pond because ponds have a tendency to just fill with silt and stuff, and, uh, and, and then they're not a pond anymore. It's a flat spot on your hand. And so – I, I, you know, 
a lot of people will dredge their ponds periodically, like every 20 years or so, you got to dredge your pond. And there's all kinds of interesting ways to go back. You know, there should be some pretty cool YouTube videos of people. I've never seen a YouTube video of somebody dredging their pond, but surely there are some. Uh, but that's a, that's a task that used to need to be done. And I've, 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 I've seen pictures of different kinds of dredges that people have created in order to be able to dredge their pond. Uh, some people would use horses to dredge their pond. Um, fascinating topic. But, yeah, if you don't do it, and then, of course, what you dig out of the bottom of your pond is usually extremely nutrient-rich, just really great stuff to, to put on your gardens. But the alternative would be that you could kind of use the monk like a vacuum cleaner or a siphon uh, to, to kind of kind of do that. Um, and he, he kind of describes a little bit of like having something that will catch all of that later on. All right. Um, moving along, uh, I, I've actually elected. There's, well, there is this thing about alignment to existing winds, but I kind of feel like he must be building ponds in places where they have a, a prevalent wind, but he likes to make them go – he likes to make ponds and lakes go – be long and skinnier, maybe oval-shaped. And, and they go along the direction of the prevailing wind. And then he likes to make it so that there's a lot of trees on the sides. So that way, as the prevailing wind approaches the pond, it'll start to go faster between the trees. And there'll be more little ripples on the water, thus having more oxygen exchange. Um, so he's got... A segment in here about that, which which I'm electing to not read. He then talks about um, the the deep zones where if you have a deep pond. In fact, for the Kramer Hop, I remember he has a lot. He has a mix of ponds. He has deep, cold ponds and shallow, warm ponds. And then when he has the system of how the water uh, that comes out of a cold pond, he makes sure that it goes into the next cold pond. And the water that comes out of a warm pond goes into a warm pond. He doesn't mix the two, which I think is kind of fascinating. So um, I, he talks a bit about that. Um, one of the things he doesn't mention is that, cause, well, he does mention how in warm weather, the temperature of ponds tends to stratify. So in warm weather, the top, the water at the top of the pond generally stays fairly warm and I'm sure we've all experienced that you go swimming in a deep lake somewhere and as long as you're swimming on the surface the water is is very comfortable but you know you you swim down like even five feet and it's like wow suddenly it got really cold true you guys have experienced this absolutely yeah mm-hmm. so large lakes and ponds the water will tend to stratify because the warmer water will rise and the colder water will sink. And, uh, and so the, the water that's cold and low tends to run out of oxygen quickly and uh, tends to stay low. Um, and then the water at the surface that gets warm tends to be the water that has the most oxygen. Um, however, 
when winter time rolls around, and he didn't mention that in the book, and I was kind of like thinking he's going to say it. In in the winter, when your surfaces want to freeze because it's a, it's freezing temperatures, in a, a deep pond, it's like, okay, that stuff that's deep is like 45 degrees. And then the stuff at the surface is now 32, and it's it's got these thoughts about freezing. Well, the 32 stuff sinks, and the 45 stuff rises. And what? And in the end, the water, because the ground underneath that's 20 feet down is holding at a constant 45 degrees. So in the end, on a deep pond or a deep lake, the surface of the water, in certain regions, like here in Montana, let's say, if it's a deep pond, the surface of the water will not freeze. I mean, it might get to be 10 below, but it still doesn't freeze. And it's because of that. It's because it's deep. Now, if it was shallow, like a mud puddle, ha, frozen solid, baby. <laughs> but uh, Or a shallower pond, frozen solid. Or a nice thick sheet of ice, something you can go ice skating on. But this deeper stuff, no skating for you. I'm sure you guys have, well, maybe not all of you. Maybe Opalin has observed this. Katie and Mark are in warmer climates. <laughs> maybe, I mean, <laughs> maybe you've never even seen naturally occurring ice. You know, all the ice is at the restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, I lived out in the Midwest uh, for most of my life. So, no, I've, I've, I'm aware of what ice and even snow is, although I don't see it recently. Okay. Katie? When the, when the ice at the restaurant, like when the cup is really, really deep. Oh, wait. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I did. I have lived in places where there was there was snow, and I did notice like the, the way that the deeper puddles and the shallower puddles would, would definitely be different. Um, I had a question about fish. I was skipping the, the fish, but I didn't understand what he said about fish. All right. I'm... I'm uh... Okay, what, what page are you on? What page do you want to talk about? Um, the same page. Uh, my page numbers are set differently than your guys' page numbers because of the, the digital version. Um, but it's the page oh. that says, and he says that he can connect a basin. He says, I can connect a basin to the drainage pipe on the outside of the dam, and the fish swim there of their own accord. And that just blows my mind, because why do the fish swim through the pipe? That seems terrible, bad plan for a fish. But uh, they they do so. I don't understand. What? Do you know why the fish do that? He's saying that the fish swim through the pipe. What? Maybe not. Am I? I, I don't he, understand. Well, he, he did he did have a mention about another pipe over the first one with slits, and to to keep the fish out of that monk pipe, but it would still allow sufficient. You know, flow of water. So that's at the top of page 73 for the print version, and the subheading is the pipe and pipe system. Every right. month needs a safety device to prevent fish from swimming through it. So we put the larger diameter pipe over the monk pipe with some slits and spacers and things so that the fish can't go through and the water can. This is the right. page before that. I think he must not have the trap on it because I just read exactly what she said and he seemed to be saying that the fish likes to go through that pipe. 
I remember on one of the videos I've watched, he talks about like siphoning um, or monking his fish to lower ponds when he like drains them. <laughs> so maybe it's the difference between like standard everyday use and then, hey, let's clean the pond monk use. Maybe yeah, I think maybe it's like Disneyland for fish. Like they're gonna go on a water ride. <laughs> there you go, fish. Maybe, it's time to party. Maybe he makes it uncomfortably low amount of water in the pond, and so they're like, anything's better than this. Let's go through this pipe. I I I do not see. I kind of believe that the monk on the downhill side is a little. Above. In fact, if you look at the image on page 71, it's like a little above the next pond. So that way the water can kind of go dribbly, dribbly, dribbly into the pond and thus, you know, aerate it. And then um, now I imagine that, you know, I can't find what you're saying he's saying, but I, I can imagine that what's going on is that the fish are gathering at that point that the water's coming in because that's like a whole lot of extra oxygen. That's that's my guess. I wish I I wish you had page numbers and stuff and could tell me where you're reading. Do you see the but, box that says practical tip right before the page um right before the section titled pipe and pipe system? Yes. I do see that. It is the paragraph right above, maybe two sentences right above practical tip. Okay. Let's see. Um, I read that part, the part about sawdust. The basin to the drainage pipe on the outside of the dam, and the fish swim there of their own accord. This is a good alternative to using nets for fishing. So I think that's just on the lower pond. The fish are swimming up to that outlet, like, Paul was saying, you know, it's highly oxygenated. So Found it. The Holzer monk offers other advantages as well, especially in the fishery. Young fish and crayfish can easily adjust to the slower draining of a pond and do not get harmed in the process. I can connect a basin to the drainage pipe on the outside of the dam and the fish swim there of their own accord. I I get it. So There's I have alternative using nets for fishing. Um, my experience is working with large like civil engineering dams, and you have to give the fish a lot of water flow to encourage them to swim upstream. Like if you don't have enough water flow, like significant water flow, the fish won't find the fish ladder. So the fish are attracted to where the water is entering the lower pond from the upper pond. And they'll come there, and you'll be able to fish right around the outlet of your monk. Okay. I kind of feel like what he's talking about here is when he drains the system with the vacuum cleaner technique. And then... Um, he's trying to say something about, like, you're draining the pond slowly, which gives the fish and crayfish lots of opportunity to move to deeper spots so that they, you know, don't run out of water. And then he's also talking about how he can set things up 
on the output of the pipe to collect the muck or whatever it is he's vacuuming, possibly even set up a net to catch certain things. And then it seems like he's also talking about at that same spot, the other fish that are in the downhill side are gathering of their own accord, which I think is what you're talking about, Opalyn, which is what you're yeah. suggesting. Yeah. So you end up with the bigger fish in the upper pond in much shallower water, so they're easier to catch because they have less places to hide, and the fish in the lower pond being attracted to that monk outlet slash pond inlet. Yes. Yes. So, Katie, does this help at all? Are we helping? Yes, thank you. I thought it just I needed more explanation of that statement because <laughs> it didn't. Thank you. Okay, okay, all right, all right. Now, I want to – I was bebopping through the whole thing about the deep zones, and he's talking about the banks and his use of large rocks to hold heat, and um, and then what uh, – he's got vegetation next to the ponds, next to the lake. Um, and then I wanted to, to, to pick back up again on the economy of water landscapes. And there's – now – is there anything before that that any of you guys have marked and want to talk about? Because um, I'm looking at page 80 now. I have one thing. Okay. True to set form and how four of his eight principles are observing. Um, yes. On page 73, <laughs> he talks about observations by the stream. And there's some really interesting stuff in there. But to sum it up, he talks about how water moves in three different ways. It meanders like a snake, waves form because of wind or airflow, and when the meanders and the waves meet, the water spirals and swirls. So that's how you get different um, things going on in the water and aeration and, and all the different lovely things that happen in a stream. And so he suggests that you sit down and watch the stream for a while. That's true. Um, uh and it does, it, he does advocate that a lot. Like the, the you know, you've got to read from the book of nature and observation mm-hmm. is, uh, four of the, uh, eight permaculture principles according to Steph. Um, I think Mollison and Holmgren have 12 <laughs> and they're all different. Um, and also, uh, one of the eight for Steph's is profit. And, uh, which I, I'm, I, I'm not sure, like, there is, there's obtain a yield, which is one of the 12 from Holmgren and Mollison, but it, it, it's like, uh, it's, it's not so blatantly said as profit. And so, uh, this next bit, Holter does dive deep into profit, which I kind of feel like is, is pretty courageous. Um, uh, I kind of, I kind of have a, a weird space in, in this, but I, I do kind of feel like if, uh, if we permit profit to be a motivator in the world of permaculture, I think permaculture gets adopted more. And then at the same time, I kind of feel like while it's good to talk about things like the, the thing I wrote about, how do we get permaculture apples in the safe way? Um, I think what's a much 
better, a higher up permaculture thing to pursue would be Gertitude. And I kind of feel like I powerfully advocate for Gertitude. And, um, and I kind of feel like people, and it's, let me, I want to hear back from all three of you about this statement I'm about to make. People are, are, they cannot contemplate gertitude until after they have, they are satisfied that they can make a profit. Does that seem legit? Like, I don't think people can make the leap from never heard of permaculture directly to gertitude. Most people need to understand how there's a profit to permaculture first. And then when they d- deep dive on that and are satisfied, and they've traveled that path long, a long time, a certain amount, it's like gertitude is like level seven, level eight, something like that. And people, when they're very first hearing the word permaculture, they're more like level one or two. Is that? All right. I'm thinking that part of it is uh, gertitude is being comfortable with what you have versus the striving effect, right? So like you've mentioned previously that gert, you know, makes enough food for for what is needed, um, has enough surplus for little expenses here and there as needed, um, that she could put more time and effort and energy into making more food or making it more profitable, but then there's all that work involved. And so I think that my my impression would be that a lot of people, at least in the United States, are taught or focus on the you've got to make the most profit or the most money, and it's only once somebody gets beyond that keeping up with the Joneses mentality that it's like I'm comfortable with what I have. And, like, I've been going through that process myself of needing less and less and, and reaching that point of, man, I I really don't need to work anymore because I'm already comfortable with what I have and I can survive off of what I have, right? And so people having maybe a comfort level or not, you know, being able to get rid of the fear of, well, if you're not making as much money as possible, how will you survive? You know, in that classic, what if something happens, you know, and therefore I'll never risk anything because there's a chance that something could happen and I don't know the answer to that. And I think Gert sort of gets beyond that and saying, I only need a couple thousand a year for taxes and food and stuff I don't make, um, you know, and being able to do well enough with less. I believe you're, I believe you are confirming what I'm saying. You're validating what I'm saying. Does that, does that seem legit? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Opalin. Oh. Since we've had some conversation, remind me of your position. <laughs> so what I'm what I'm saying is is that I think most people cannot contemplate Gert until they have first like when they first hear about permaculture, they first need to know that people can make 
money with permaculture. They profit from permaculture. And until they are satisfied that they can profit with permaculture, most people cannot contemplate gratitude. I would agree with that. Absolutely. I know that a lot of people are very tied to their work and um, not to get sexist, but males tend to identify more with their work as their being and women tend to um, identify with their relationships. Um, And so without that identity and money has been very strongly tied to work. So if they're not making money in permaculture, then it's not their work and it's not their identity. And so I think that that is, is a big part of it. And for me, like I was partially living a Gert-ish lifestyle for nearly a decade where like I would, um, I don't know how much I want to go into it, but, um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, a lot of emotions are swirling because life has changed for me. But, um, you know, realizing, like, I buy most of my clothes at the Goodwill outlet because I can either improve it and make it amazing or I can use it as is. Like, I find cashmere sweaters and wool sweaters there that are perfect as they are or can be transformed into something that I really want. Like, I made my own long silk skirt out of men's silk ties that I would acquire um, (laughs) because that's what I wanted. So, so, all right. You've, you have confirmed what I've said. Yes. For, for, for a variety of reasons, for a buffet of reasons. And you've even kind of lived that path a little bit, like been there, done that a little bit. Yeah. Fair. Okay. Katie. Well, it depends. <laughs> ooh, ooh, she beat Classic us all. Answer. She had <laughs> the answer, the answer to all questions. Damn. I, think, of that. I, I think if you have a, a chunk of money in the bank, you might give girding a try without believing that it would be, like, without, without believing it would be profitable. Maybe you'd believe it would be for self-sustaining but not profitable but you feel comfortable because you have a buffer or maybe you have an alternative stream that is not permaculture that you're like well I have this other way I work this five hours a week or whatever it is and you feel like okay that would be that would be enough and maybe you've already lived a little bit on a lower budget not permaculture necessarily but low budget and so you're like okay I can try this I can see if it works and then only when they feel like I can actually get my own food most of the time. Like, you could you maybe you surprise yourself. And you're like, well, actually, I can. I could. Then you might you might change your feeling about how much you need alternative streams of income or how, how much you need to have the buffer and, and relax your um, your feeling of insecurity or something. Um, but I think that, that if it, if there, there might be people who they have to have that profit, and there might be people who have another way of feeling safe, and then there are some people who just jump overboard. I don't know. So, uh, I think you're also 
you're also saying if I if, you know, by, if I qualify it by saying most people, then you are endorsing what I am saying. Fair. Mm, sure. <laughs> it depends. Okay. This podcast is continued in part two. Don't forget, go out to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts.